Almost all of which we willingly subject ourselves to is ultimately inconsequential, meaningless fluff, but we ride it like a roller coaster. Hey everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about feedback loops. A feedback loop is the part of a system in which some portion or all of the system's output is used as input for future operations. Now this comes from the writer Laura Fitzgibbons and uh, it says each feedback loop has a minimum of four stages. During the first stage input is created. During the second stage input is captured and stored. During the third stage input is analyzed and during the fourth stage the insight gained from analysis is used to make decisions. Feedback loops can be either negative or positive. Negative feedback loops are self-regulating and useful for maintaining an optimal state within specific boundaries. An old-fashioned house thermostat that uses bang-bang control whatever that means, to turn on a furnace is a classic example of self-regulating negative feedback loop. When the temperature drops to a predetermined low set point, the thermostat switches the heating system on. When the temperature reaches a predetermined high set point, the thermostat switches the heating system off. Negative feedback loops are known for being stable, but not especially accurate. For example, in the case of a home thermostat, there can be a fairly wide range of acceptable temperatures that can cause the heating system to have a fairly long response time. In contrast, positive feedback loops simply repeat actions that have been effective in the past. The intention of a positive feedback loop is to amplify a desired variable and naturally move the system away from its starting state to a desired state. Problems can occur, however, when the positive feedback loop grows exponentially without any checks or balances. In such a scenario, a runaway positive feedback loop can make a system become unstable. Well, there are uses for feedback loops. They can be applied to a variety of different fields. They are also an important aspect of closed loop control systems. In biology, feedback loops help organisms maintain balance in different life cycles. More specifically, with humans, feedback loops include internal temperature regulation and healing. In computer science, a feedback loop refers to an endless loop of instructions that can be given to a computer that has no final step. In software development, feedback loops are used on programs to detect potential problems or defects within the code. In psychology, professionals study the impact of feedback loops that cause patients 
to fall into cyclical thinking. An example could be a person's feelings leading up to an important event. Anxiety or fear may negatively impact the actual event itself, whereas confidence might result in the opposite effect. In economics, an example of a feedback loop is a company that reinvests sales revenue to generate even more income. In customer experience, a customer feedback loop refers to a business strategy where product developers use customer opinion to determine future actions. In marketing, social media can be used as a feedback loop to improve marketing techniques. For example, measuring the types of content that have the highest levels of engagement can help marketers know which content to pursue in the future. Well, I have my own version of a feedback loop. But first, I would like to talk about an article called A Decade of Microaggression Research and LGBT Communities. The article comes from Kevin L. Nadal, Ph.D., John Jay College of Criminal Justice City University, New York, New York. The abstract is, though the Supreme Court of the U.S. legalized same-sex marriage in 2015, and we are in great peril, heterosexism and transphobia has continued to manifest through many systems in the U.S., from lack of federal protection in employment non-discrimination laws to policies that prohibit transgender people from using bathroom and public facilities that match their gender identities. Heterosexist and transphobic discrimination have also persisted through interpersonal interactions, ranging from more overt forms, that is hate crimes and bullying, to more subtle forms of discrimination, otherwise known as microaggressions. Since 2008, there have been hundreds of articles written on microaggressions with dozens specifically on experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. Qualitative and quantitative studies have revealed that LGBTQ people who experience microaggressions have reported negative outcomes like depression, low self-esteem, and trauma. Heterosexism and transphobia has continued to manifest on systemic levels, ranging from states' anti-transgender laws regarding the use of bathroom and public facilities to the passing of religious freedom laws that permit anti-LGBTQ discrimination. When such behaviors align with one's religion, that is, not baking a cake for a same-sex wedding. Sexual orientation and gender identity are not considered protected classes in federal employer non-discrimination laws, and many state laws prohibit adoption by same-sex couples. This goes back to 2015. Interpersonally, anti-LGBTQ discrimination has continued to persist, from anti-LGBTQ bullying in K-12 institutions to the alarming amount of murders of trans women of color annually. And that goes back to 2018. Over the past decade, 
Researchers have also examined microaggressions or subtle forms of discrimination that LGBTQ people and other historically marginalized groups encounter in their daily lives. Conceptualized initially as racial microaggressions and later reintroduced, many scholars have highlighted the many ways that racial discrimination have manifested in more covert or well-intentioned forms, often by individuals who were unaware of their biased behaviors. As people of color had attained more rights and opportunities than in the past, it had become less socially acceptable for people to maintain or vocalize racial biases. Accordingly, microaggression scholars argued that people, particularly those who belong to dominant identity groups, may no longer participate in overt or bigoted behavior, but instead may engage in unconscious or subconscious behavior that may be reflective of their implicit biases. And that goes back to 2010 and 2018. In the past few years, thousands of media articles have been written about microaggressions through popular outlets such as the New York Times, Huffington Post, Washington Post, and BuzzFeed. Hundreds of scholarly articles on microaggressions, particularly racial microaggressions, emerged at a much more rapid rate than other previous studies focusing on psychological and sociological concepts. Microaggression theory had been expanded to include discrimination based on gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, ability status, religion, ethnicity, and other identity groups as far back as 2010. They were first described based on sexual orientation and introduced a taxonomy outlining microaggressions based on sexual orientation and gender identity, with Nadal hypothesizing themes that were later qualitatively supported. Examples of those endorsed themes include use of heterosexist transphobic terminology, endorsement of heteronormativity gender binaries, assumption of sexual pathology, and discomfort or disapproval of LGBTQ identities or experiences. Numerous qualitative and quantitative studies have revealed that LGBTQ people who experience microaggressions have reported negative outcomes such as depression, low self-esteem, and trauma. Despite this research, some naysayers have argued that microaggressions are not valid, that people who experience microaggressions are overly sensitive or paranoid, or that microaggression research is not scientifically robust. Thus, it is crucial to build on the existing research on microaggressions to use multiple, robust, and creative methods to document the existence of microaggressions and to continue to validate the lived experiences of LGBTQ people and other groups. Now, for me, we do it to each other all the time. We mock each other with microaggressions within the community because we've all got issues. And I say, be proud, be yourself. We all need affirmation. Our community always needs to reaffirm our existence every day. I used to make fun of somebody who uh, suspiciously claimed that he was a top. 
and he had a very uh, uh, irritating way of saying it. He would screech in a very high voice and say, I'm a top. I want to shoot pool. I want to go to the spike. I want to go to the eagle. I'm a top. And we'd all say, okay, okay, Mary. That's just so convincing. But if you say you're a top, you're a top. So don't worry about it. And we have to stop doing this to each other. That's fine. Just be advised that if you do make a big deal about it, some of us might wince a little at the desperation. And some of us are still not as cool as we think we are. Reminds me of, All right, Rabbit, where's Rocky? Where's he hiding? He's not hiding in the stove! Yeah. But that guy who claimed to be a top wanted the affirmation of a feedback loop where he wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. He didn't want anyone to disagree with him. He was just unconsciously displaying a little insecurity about his identity. He's not hiding in this stove! I look back to when I lived on Long Island, and Long Island has a very different, albeit adjacent, culture to New York City. At the time I lived there, there were a larger number of gay bars, as they were everywhere, and they were oases. However, not all of the gay people lived through the bars. If they did go to them, the bars were not their only source of local culture. There was, of course, the legendary Field Six at Jones Beach, which was actually the remnants of Field Nine. The fields at Jones Beach each had their own pavilions for everything from first aid to beverages and burgers to sunscreen to beach towels and so forth. Robert Moses built Jones Beach, as I spoke of in my pod, The Beach, and Field 9, the last of the fields, was destroyed in a devastating hurricane in 1938. But the concrete flat foundation remained somewhat intact for decades and was used all the time as a place for guys to lie flat on a towel with a boombox and a cooler while they got an all-over tan. And it happened to have dunes grow around it. So the dunes around them were, as they say, festive. Then there were the other guys, the California Raisins, as I call them. They were all pleasant, older fellows, almost all bald or balding men who were exhibitionists and nudists, and they had skin so weathered they made New England barns look fresh. All naked and leathery, many of them school teachers or retired school teachers as well. They were quite outgoing and were well aware that their generation and mine were unlikely to, let's say, intimately engage, but sometimes they did. They just weren't leches for the most part. And I have to acknowledge those guys because they were very pleasant fellows. They need to be acknowledged and they needed to be affirmed and they affirmed other people. 
it was sort of a signal. If you walked down the beach and you saw a wooden stick, a piece of driftwood that was uh, pounded into the ground and it had some tattered flag, uh, you knew you were coming to field nine. And as soon as you saw those eight or nine naked guys, you knew you were at the gay beach. So, moving on from the gay beach and the gay bars, I had a fitness equipment store, which I was a partner in, which was next to a beauty parlor run by a locally infamous character with a colored checkered history and a heavy drinking problem who meant well, but he was a bit of a lech and did not have any idea that he turned people off with his uncouth behavior. And on the other side of the fitness shop was a well-known comic book store. Now, I have to stop right there and say, this strip mall was built on the site of a former gay bar that was known as Frecklebellies. And one of the more well-known patrons was someone referred to as Grandma. It was an older gay man. Anyway, back to the fitness equipment store in the strip mall. Uh, the comic book store, which was next door to the fitness equipment store, was run by two versions of the comic book guy on The Simpsons. It really was. Every Saturday, the place was bursting with dads buying up comics with their kids, who the dads seemed to have dragged there on the pretense that the kids wanted the comics and not the dads, but we knew better. Cute. Local geeks and a number of gay men who were fanboys to comics came as well. Since it was the closest comic book store to the Nassau Coliseum, they also had featured appearances by professional wrestlers and just about every touring band sent at least a roadie or two to pick up as many comics for the entire traveling company to share on the buses as possible. Once in a blue moon, a headliner would appear to say hello and make special purchases they themselves wanted. In a strip mall on Jerusalem Avenue in North America. Ha! And a lot of gay men would pick up their comics on Saturdays too. They often visited my shop to say hi, as did a number of the bartenders of the local bars that were all over who knew me, because once you were recognizable as a touchpoint, you became known. So there's the feedback loop. And I obviously graded and chatted with a bunch of guys who made my place one of their stops. It wasn't until later in life that I realized that I provided a place for gay men to be themselves, even though most of them were quite timid at first to identify, and I learned it was very difficult for them to be out. This goes back to the early 90s, especially considering how many of them weren't due to extreme pressures on them as school teachers, or they had cover heterosexual relationships, and the general atmosphere of the times forced many of these guys to be closeted. Imagine the hell you went through four decades ago if you can see what people are facing now. This was before the Tom Hanks film Philadelphia, folks. The whole point is 
that we lived in a constant feedback loop to reassure and validate each other and to fortify our numbers and to reaffirm our identities to a great deal. It was quite a chore to be out and a cultural oddity to most people. The out guys and many, like those desiccated guys on the beach who were lifelong school teachers, were closeted. Most of them anyway. So we needed to at least be physically there just so we knew we were far from alone, especially if we were not part of the elitist cliques you might find in more upscale refuges, just guys who were and are gay. And we spend a lot of time trying to define ourselves because once we set our sights on our sexual identities, it becomes a larger aspect of our focus. And we can sometimes tune out other aspects of life when things become stressful or we feel threatened. So I got feedback in a way that I never expected, just because these guys could relax. We all kind of sighed and shrugged when the beauty parlor guy came in because he introduced a low tone and we either waited him out or just made pleasant small talk, acknowledging to ourselves that he was on a different plane and then they left, coming back next week to chat and connect. You know, these guys would come into the store and say hi and introduce themselves by mentioning the gay bar very, very uh, uh, tentatively to me just to see if I would acknowledge. And of course I always did. And that was great in retrospect. It added dimension to a lot of people's lives. And I thought about that and looked up the issues LGBTQ people face today. And there are very many microaggressions, as they say, and just plain hardships for young LGBTQ people, even though it was almost impossible to withstand the isolation and ridicule and threat of physical violence that was completely accepted when I was a gay youth. They have their own difficulties in this age, and to make a comparison is unfair, so I won't even try. One of the things I will have to say, in retrospect, because of our microaggressions and our harsh mistreatment of each other, is that the queeniest guys were always the bravest. As I was told by someone who ran a place called the Pines in Provincetown, he had been out since hatching. He had no choice. He was a gay man and he was a gay boy. So he had to deal with and withstand all the abuse and the torture and the torment. And they made it easier for us. And they were proud of themselves and they accepted people like me and because they knew so many of us and most of us were closeted. And we were just creaking that closet door open. And those were the guys who helped us. So, to all the queens who helped me walk through that closet door, I love you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, Peace out.